Hey everybody, it is Ben, half of your podcasting duo. Uh, today we are going to release a rewind episode. This is season two, episode 12, Star Wars film in law, plus a little introduction about, at the time, the recent Stanley Cup champion, St. Louis Blues. Um, I'm running this episode right now for a couple of reasons. One is that we just did an edamame that was about film, so I wanted to stay on the theme of film for another week. Uh, and then the other is just that uh, it's cold and it's wintertime, and I was feeling nostalgic about uh, that Stanley Cup run. And this is one of my favorite episodes that we did in season two, both because of uh, that introduction, which really captures sort of a unique moment in time for Kirk and I as a St. Louisans. And then uh, we don't usually go into much detail about cases like this. this is part of our ongoing goal of getting content out to you on a more regular basis, even if we're just recycling some old stuff. Uh, but we want to put something in your inbox. If you've heard this one already, then, you know, if you don't want to listen to it again, skip it. You won't hurt our feelings. In fact, we won't even know. Uh, but if you want to have a little uh, blast from the past and uh, go back and revisit uh, that discussion, then uh, listen on. Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by Hanson Sports LTD, Charleston's premier personal trainers for elite athletes. The Hanson brothers have what it takes to keep you in the fight. Welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, the podcast that asks interesting questions that don't have any answers with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. We are intellectual property lawyers and certified geeks practicing law in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me, Ben, on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and you can find Kirk at KirkDMN. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at LGGPod, and all this information is on our website, www.lggpodcast.com. Kirk. We have the most important news announcement of all. Yes. uh, You are listening to a podcast uh, in St. Louis, home of the Stanley Cup champion St. Louis Blues as of last night. (laughs) Amazingly enough, yes. I think that's the uh, thing we have. It's obviously not going to be quite, you know, immediately thereafter, but there is uh, all sorts of people on the street wandering around, you know, in Blues attire. It was crazy. I don't know if any of you probably – hockey is not the most popular of sports. I've always been a – not always. Since the 90s, I've been a pretty big hockey fan. I was actually a Blues fan before I even lived here and a couple years ago um, the Blues got bounced in, a, in the playoffs and I sent an angry tweet out that basically said this team will never win the Stanley Cup. It's never <laughs> going to happen. They're cursed. And everybody was throwing that back in my face yesterday but that was fine. <laughs> Happy to be wrong. No, it's, 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 been, it's been fun. Hockey is, is I, I heard a sports writer say it best. Hockey is the best sport to be the best at. I mean, the championships are earned in a way that they're just not in a lot of other sports. You know, football, you know, you know, if you win two or three games, you win a championship uh, because everything's a one-off. Whereas yeah. hockey, everything's everything's done the hard way, especially for us this year. Everything was done <laughs> everything the hard way. Everything was truly done the hard way. So, yeah. Well, and for those of you who don't know, the Blues were in last place. Uh, January, I'm sure you've yeah. heard that by now. But, yeah, back in January, they were in absolute last place. I had fired their coach. There was no sign of life. And now a Cinderella story, a very, very rare Cinderella story in professional sports. We just don't yeah. see that many of those anymore. Yeah, and there's definitely – I mean, I, I'm sort of the opposite of Ben. I, I could see – Consider myself to be hockey about the fan I'm the like lowest fan of. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really not particularly interested in hockey. It's hard not to have gotten blues fever for the last couple of weeks. Yeah. I mean, we weren't even in the city and we were completely had it. You know, we were traveling, but it's one of those things where. It's it's so great to see. It's so cool to see. There's a lot of just, and I think you don't encounter about St. Louis. St. Louis is very into its sports. Yeah, um, hockey in particular. It's a it's a much smaller group of fans than the Cardinals fan base. Like yeah. The Cardinals fan base is regional, bordering on national. There's Cardinals fans everywhere, everywhere. and part of that's because the Cardinals have had a historically it's a you know longer running team, and they had a, a yeah. wider broadcast reach. Yeah, they're an old team. They had a long broadcast reach from the original AM radio. Yep, and but they were also always been good. Yeah. Yeah, and, and the, the Blues, you know, were added in the 60s, and uh, the Blues fans in St. Louis are incredibly loyal and, and just a little bit insane. Yeah, they're very tired. <laughs> I mean, there's some respects, and, and, you know, sorry, we're going to say this, they're kind of like Cubs fans. Yes, um, yeah. You know, they, they were sort of always wanted, you know, always been hoping, always been wanting, and stuff like that. Yeah, so. the team was almost defined by its inability to win championships for so yeah. long. And we just, just kind of come to accept it, like, all right, we're always going to be good. We're never, never going to win anything. And we'll go to games and drink some beers and watch some hockey. And that's just what it's going to be. But yeah. not this year. Now there's 
Now there's a Stanley Cup. Yeah, it's it's so interesting, too, when you think about sort of the, the idea of the Cinderella story and all these teams that can't win. You know, the Blues now, you know, the, the hockey team that couldn't win a championship has won. The Red Sox, the team that couldn't win a you know, yeah, World Series has won. The Cubs, the team that can't win the World Series has won. We've had two of these now, too. Remember the Rams uh, won that Super Bowl with Kurt yep. Warner. It came out of nowhere. Yep. Um, you know, there was another Cinderella Worst story. First, yeah. the city, so. And it's exactly 20 years ago. That was 1999. Yeah. So if, if my voice sounds a little uh, strained on this episode, uh, I was up a little too late last night. <laughs> we, we are all a little bit that way. <laughs> the whole yeah, city it's, was. It, it, we can tell that we have been in the office this morning and everybody's dragging around the office a bit. So. Yeah, I so saw someone came in and kind of plopped down to talk to me. And I was like, well, you look tired. And he's like, I am. <laughs> Well, anyway, today's episode is not about hockey. It's about Star Wars. Um, we're going to talk, well, last last episode, we talked about the use of law in film. Today, we're going to talk about film in law uh, <laughs> in, as far as lawsuits involving Star Wars. And the idea for this topic was basically, uh, we heard from uh, quite a few people that the actual cases that we talked about were really interesting, which yep. we kind of originally didn't really want to talk about specific cases. We thought the uh, legal cases are just hard to discuss to people who aren't lawyers because you have to understand so much like legal background of procedure and things like that to really appreciate uh, the strategy and the arguments yep. and, and what goes on. So it's really hard to take a nice complicated IP case and distill it down to something you can you can bite off in you know in 10 minutes. But um, I can use as an example and I think it's, it, it just gives you the idea of a lot of why we weren't interested in doing case analysis originally. When you go to law school, you do case analysis. The vast majority of the way you learn is reading cases, you know, sort of distilling what they have to say and what is that mean about the law? I still very distinctly recall the very first time, you know, my very first assignment was civil procedure, getting, you know, my casebook, opening my casebook, and I have no lawyers in my family, so it's one of those that I had sort of no association with it. Reading the first case and having to go to Black's Law Dictionary of going like, what are all these terms yeah. mean? These are terms that I will throw around with impunity now. You know, I mean, they're so basic to it. They had nothing to do with what I was supposed to learn in the case. But it was things where I had so little understanding of what it is. What you bump into is that in many respects, learning law by case method and, and legal cases is, as I, I sort of joke about it, it'd be like learning, you know, how to speak Russian by reading Russian ballet. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's that esoteric. It is. It's really a sink or swim exercise. You just get kind of thrown into it. Because there's no good place to start. Yeah. You know, you just have to start reading cases and have someone explain what you need to know. And what you usually read is appellate cases, which are usually appeals of motions for summary judgment or yeah. motions for directed verdict that were denied or granted. And so the first thing you have to understand is what are those things and what's the procedural posture of the case? Because in real practice, the standard of review really decides yep. a lot as far as who wins and who loses. So, And that was, I remember very distinctly having to look up what was summary judgment and not understanding what yeah. summary judgment was after looking it up. And you know, the professor explains, well, summary judgment is when there's no material issue of fact. Like, okay, well, what's that mean? What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and, that's, and that's the thing. So that's the reason we chide away a little bit from cases is because one of the things you bump into is that a lot of times when people like read legal cases or you see reviews of legal cases in the news, we've even talked about them, they'll say, oh, this is the issue. And it may be that that's, that may be the underlying issue of the case, but oftentimes that's not the reason the decision was made. Yeah. Um, and, and, and the media, you know, they're, they're doing what they can. They're not, they're not lawyers. They shouldn't have to be lawyers to report on the law, but you can't really capture what's going on. Like the Google v. Oracle case. Yep. I've seen that badly misreported all over the place, what's going on and, and what it what it means. And it's because the people reporting on it have a passionate interest in things like open source software, uh, portability and inter interoperability of technology – all, all good things, all important things, but they don't really understand what the issues are in the case or how yeah. it got to where it is, uh, what the procedural uh, posture is. So one of the reasons we're doing Star Wars is because the underlying subject matter is not some esoteric legal concept. It's something you already know. Well, and, and if you listen to this podcast, you also know it's something we really like a lot yes, and have that, been that, involved with a lot. That's probably just as important. We, we <laughs> like it, so we're going to talk about it. It's our podcast. Um uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about some Star Wars cases that we, we think will make some of the, 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 the legal details more accessible and, and, frankly, more interesting because a lot of legal stuff, although we think it's interesting, yeah. it's a little dry to other people. The other thing about it is, and I think the, the reason for using, you know, particularly sort of a, a science fiction property in conjunction with it, one, because it's the purpose of the podcast, but science fiction properties, most of what we're going to be involved here are going to be intellectual property issues. Yep. Um, and, again, we've had a lot of interest in sort of those kind of issues, talking about those kind of things. Um, it's It becomes easy when you talk about 
unreal subject matter. Yeah. You know, if you start talking about, hey, I'm doing a documentary film, you have a lot of different issues than if you start talking about something that says I have completely made up subject matter. Yep. Um, and so, you know, that's part of the reason for also doing it is that it is, it's a very well-known subject matter. It's something that I think anybody who listens to this podcast is going to at least have a pretty good understanding of what is in the Star Wars movies, what sort of surrounded the Star Wars movies, all of these involve toys, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, you know, what the culture is like around Star Wars because it was so culturally relevant in a way that you could look at it and say, like, you know, Earth 2020 was not. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it may be considered great science fiction, but it wasn't as culturally relevant. And even something sort of picking in the middle, you know, if we were to use, like, Battlestar Galactica, um, a lot of people know that. It's a well-known property, but it doesn't necessarily have sort of the cultural significance that Star yeah. Wars does. And so much of what this is going to relate to has to do with that cultural significance, and that's why these lawsuits happened. Also, I, I've it's weird. I always had the perception of Lucasfilm as not being nearly as aggressive with their IP as they could have been. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think that perception is shared by everybody. I occasionally run into people who say, oh, George Lucas is a real bear about his IP. IP. And I, I've always felt the opposite, that, that he he has been at times, but that he could have been a lot more aggressive. And, and he's let, let, let a lot of fan things slip that he yeah. didn't have to. I, I think it's one of those where it's – I think he's been very appreciative of his fans sort of always. Yeah. Um, like whereas, how many videos are there of, you know, if you're a film student doing special effects, what's the first thing you do? Yeah. You make, you know, you make an After Effects video of yourself in a lightsaber battle. They're yeah. all over YouTube. And to my knowledge, none of those get taken down. Now, maybe there's not a good argument to take them down in the first place, but I'm pretty sure if Lucasfilm – Called up YouTube and said, "Take those down. They're coming down." Yeah, yeah it's because of who they are. I'll be Disney now, but yeah, Disney, you know, I guess. Yeah, but the uh, the thing I think I think part of it also is just because I think he's treated a fan base, and part of it I think is also just timing wise and cultural wise. You know, Star Trek at the same similar time period was also very appreciative of its fans. I mean, to the point that like you know there are Star Trek fan fiction anthologies that are mm-hmm. essentially official. And Star Trek um, would actually take spec scripts from fans too, which yeah. very few movie studios will do or TV uh, TV, studios. TV studios. And so. Yeah, I think you got a lot of – some of it may have just been the time period as to, you know, when it happened to happen and sort of what things around it. I think a lot of it, quite frankly, around Star Wars is just because of the nature of what Star Wars was to Lucas individually because so much of it was the toys. Yeah. You know, there's the, the Star Wars had this unique break between the, the, the movie and the toys being the first movie that really, really capitalized on the toy market, something that is completely ubiquitous now. Yeah. And yeah. and I think it's it maybe hard for, like, younger listeners. It's even hard for me because, I mean, I was a, a kid when the Star Wars toys came out. I had a lot of the Star Wars toys. Of the idea that, like, there weren't movie toys before then. Well, it turned the model on its head to some extent. It used to be that you came up with a toy line, then made up a movie or a TV show to promote it. That's, you know, Transformers <laughs> was like that. There's still a little bit of that even There's in the 80s still some of and that, stuff. Yeah. I mean, there was a lot of that. Whereas Star Wars was, was we're going to lead with narrative and the toys will just kind of develop from there. Now, I think, I think that also got flipped with the prequels to some extent. And there was a little bit too yeah. much of the merchandising driving. There, the- there was also, I think, uh, at the time, you know, no real expectation the toys were going to do very well. No, you know that. Why no, would they you didn't have ready to go? These movie things. <laughs> one, of, one of the best comments I actually heard, and I always thought this was great. Um, it's by a guy who does an online uh, Star Wars comic strip, and one of the things he talks about is what was so amazing about Star Wars from a cultural point of view and from the toy point of view is he says, you, and you have to be old enough to remember this, and again, even I'm a little too young to completely remember this, but as he says, he's like, before Star Wars came out, kids on the playground were the United States shooting Nazis. Mm-hmm. You became Imperial stormtroopers shooting at Jedis after Star Wars. That's what we t- we have now. All of our, you know, when kids act out things, they tend to act out movies. They tend to mm-hmm. act out sort of these cultural pieces. It was historical events up until that point in time. Yeah, not real historical events. I mean, you know, kids obviously made these yep. things up. But you had the, the sort of two real existing sides, you know, based upon historical fact. Um, you know, sort of things like that. And it's, it's one of those things I think is very, very interesting in the fact that, you know, when he said that, was a great comment about how culturally relevant Star Wars was mm-hmm. to kids and how much it really did change our narrative. And I think that gets us a little bit into our first case that we want to get into of just how that the wording of Star Wars and, and the name Star Wars were so common and just so well-known yeah. out there. Well, and this first case is also very much rooted in the time period, and so we probably have to lay some background for that. The first case we're going to talk about uh, was, was filed by Lucasfilm in the 80s uh, in the district court uh, for the District of Columbia, so the D.C. Circuit Court, um, against two lobbying firms. 
And uh, the, the basis for the lawsuit was that the lobbying firms were using the term Star Wars as a shorthand to describe a Reagan-era um, nuclear missile defense program called the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI. Yep. So those of you who are our age, remember this. It was a big deal. Yep. Star um, Wars was a huge thing. And again, was, even as I say it, I'm going to refer to it as Star Wars. That's yeah, what we all knew it as. as. we all called it Star Wars, the Star Wars program. Uh, I don't even know how that got started. I'm sure the media did that at some point. It was called that because the idea was we're going to defend ourselves against uh, nuclear nuclear annihilation by the Russians by having space lasers that shoot down their nukes yeah. before they come over. And it, was, it was really, and that strategic defense initiative. What you realize the strategic defense initiative really was was space based weapons. Yeah. It was hideously expensive. They never got it operationalized. There's been some theories that they never intended to operationalize it. They just wanted to make an expensive program to force the Russians to have to spend the same amount of money knowing they couldn't afford to do it yeah. and that we'd bankrupt them. Um, so I don't know if that's true or not. It kind of makes sense. But in any event, we never built it. Neither did they. Yeah. It doesn't exist. Uh, Reagan took a lot of flack for trying to weaponize space. Yep. Um, and they called it Star Wars. And this really was, and again, I think that's what I want to focus on this. This was the weaponization of space. And I think you also need to put into the Which context supposed to be with this. not possible yeah. with all the treaties we have. But you also have to think in, in context with this, this was done in the 80s. This was done under the fear of nuclear annihilation. You know, for those of us, those of you who are younger, who don't sort of live through the 80s, don't remember having nuclear, you know, nuclear or bomb drills where you hit under your desk Hit under school, your desk because, because the desk will definitely ward off all of the radiation. <laughs> Gamma rays can't penetrate mica <laughs> And stuff like that. The um, the uh, the thing sort of that you had with it, we, we really had this sort of fear of nuclear war, not just even pur- purposeful nuclear war, but the possibility of accidental nuclear war. If you go and you watch movies from the 80s, you will see, you know, there, how many of them are post-apocalyptic, post-nuclear war weapons, you know, things like that. There are a lot of 80s movies. Um, the one that I think you can put out, which was just recently discussed on some of the other podcasts we listened to, go watch Red Dawn. It's the best yeah. bet as to what it is. Or quite frankly, read Red Dawn, which is another, you know, book you can read sort of in conjunction. But if you watch Red Dawn, it is very hard in today's culture to understand Red Dawn. Because it, it, you lack the the, the background of context of, context of a nuclear annihilation that what it is. And basically, just so you guys know, New Red Dawn is essentially that the United States is invaded by the Soviet Union. And it's a story of a bunch of kids who are having to fight back the, the commies. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I use that term purposely, you know, as, you know, the idea of commies because that's what it was. It was yeah. it was an almost satirical version of what the Soviets were. Yeah. Um, but that was what we were talking about. So, again, we're talking about the weaponization of space. And these the, the two lobbyist groups involved in this. Well, first of all, the media was using this term to refer to it. So if you ever see like old footage of uh, you know primetime news, which I yep. guess is really all there was at the time. We didn't. I mean, yeah, there was no cable. <laughs> I mean, there was, but I, nobody had it because <laughs> you know cable at the time was ten bucks a month, and that was more than anybody could afford. Um, but just uh, two groups of lobbyists also using the term in TV advertising, promoting their positions. One was in favor of the SDI in, uh, program, and one was against. So. Lucasfilm sued them both uh, for, for various reasons. One was uh, infringement, trademark infringement, unfair competition, misappropriation, disparagement, various business torts, and so forth. Uh, and, and the court wasn't receptive to any of these arguments, really, and, and they lost. Uh, they were seeking an injunction to force their commercials off the air to stop using Star Wars, uh, but the court didn't like it. The court said that Lucas's trademarks, quote, only protect him against those who seek to attach those words, the words being Star Wars, to products or services that compete with him in the marketplace against those who dilute the value of his mark by engaging in a non-competing trade or business but utilize the mark in connection with the disreputable or sleazy product or service. Service, and under some circumstances, even against those who injure his business by offering goods or services that disparage the goodwill value of Star Wars, this case fits none of those molds, end quote. Yep. Kirk, why not? Well, I think the first thing you really bump into, and I think to keep in mind with it, is th- the people using Star Wars here are not selling any goods they're at all. They're not selling anything. <laughs> well, they are selling arguably their services they're as lobbyists. They're selling ideas. Um, and know? ideas and stuff like that. But they're presumably selling their services as lobbyists. Yeah. That's how they make their money. But they're not going but, to the the people they're representing, like the interests yeah. they're representing. They're not going to them and saying, we have Star Wars brand lobbying services. Yeah. They're not selling anything under the brand name Star Wars. And I think that's the real key to it's it. It's more phenomenal use, right? A descriptive yep. use. And and that's, I think, the second piece of it. So the first one of it is, is they're not really selling anything under it. The second thing with it is, is they're really using Star Wars to describe this SDI, you know, Reagan yeah. era initiative, which is already being referred to as Star Wars. Yeah, in, by, in by news contexts. and other people. Yeah. So that's the next question. Why, why sue these lobbyists 
and not go after, you know, the news anchors who are using it every night at the 6 o'clock news? Well, I mean, the first thing behind it is because going after the news anchors is really, really hard. Yeah. <laughs> because they're clearly not selling anything. They're reporting the news. Yeah. And so, you know, for them to say it's Star Wars to call it that type of thing, you really wonder, well, you know, how is there anything related to the trademark? About the only thing you could say they're doing is they're somehow, you know, associating my trademark with something negative. But even there, we don't know where the term came from. And I think that's one of ours. And definitely if the well actually people will not happen to the answer to this. You know, I'm sure it's know. documented somewhere yeah, what the first use was. Let us know was. where the first use of Star Wars was. We couldn't find it. Um, associated with the SDI. We know where it is associated with the yes. movie. <laughs> but the uh, those are some, uh, I think, the, the real reason they didn't go after the news anchors. I think also part of it, quite frankly, is because these guys were commercial entities. They were selling lobbying services. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And they were clearly using Star Wars to market their lobbying surfaces. You know, even though that wasn't the brand of what they were selling, they were clearly using that to promote their brand. And the argument was, hey, it's diluting it. It's it's causing injury to my trademark. You're using your my trademark in ways you shouldn't. Yeah, this, this had the feeling of a test case to me. You're, I think, you know, Lucasfilm probably sensed that they were not likely to get any sympathy from a court or jury going after the news and saying you can't call it Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's a pretty strong First Amendment argument there, free speech, free press. Um, I, I, I can't imagine that succeeding. But I think maybe they went after the lobbyists thinking, although it is a political message, it's a bought and paid for political message to promote a specific, you know, private agenda in the, you know, in the public sphere, that's what lobbying is. And I thought maybe this is a place we can draw this line and figure out. Because if we can draw the line here, then everything that on the more commercial, private uh, side from from lobbying, we should be able to stop the use of Star Wars. And the court said no, and that was that. I think the last thing, and it's one of those, I think you also have a little bit of an issue here, is Star Wars is arguably descriptive. Remember, we were talking about space-based weapons. Yeah. We were talking about war. I mean, we were talking about the idea of wars, and and that was part of the things, and we're in space. Now, you could say arguably space wars or satellite wars might be more more accurate, but Star Wars is still arguably descriptive for what the SDI was. Or or at at best, it's suggestive. Um, But yeah, so I think that it's worth sort of noting that the real key here, and I think this is one of those things with it, and the reason to put this case on and to talk about this one, we've talked a lot about trademarks and the idea of sort of trademark infringement, this concept of confusingly similar in goods and services. This is a perfect example of where you have the two things be very disconnected. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, a, a government program related to space-based weapons being compared against a movie. Yeah. And the, the only thing they share in common is the title, you know, the name. Yeah. It's, it's nothing the Reagan administration did. They never called it that. Somebody else did. And, yeah. and then it was, well, the Reagans are calling it a Star Wars program. But yeah. this is just the, the moniker that got attached to it over time. It made sense. Star Wars was, was a big deal at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, it'd be like nowadays having things being referred to with reference to uh, uh, the, the Infinity Gauntlet. You see Infinity yeah. Gauntlet jokes all the time. Actually, it is. Yeah, you're starting to see it. That's a good yeah. example of Infinity Gauntlet jokes. Or just, yeah, or just the snap, you know, War. reference yeah. to the snap. Yeah, and that's, I mean, we were even making one of those yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, case number two. This one will be a little trickier to talk about. Um, There's actually two cases we're going to go over because it also speaks to this line drawing we were talking about uh, just now. Uh, There was a case filed in 2002, again by Lucasfilm, against a company called Media Market Group Limited, which uh, doesn't sound like much. uh, But Media Market Group Limited was apparently publishing um, a special subclass of parody film uh, in the nature of uh, adult-only entertainment, shall we say. (laughs) Uh, And so obviously we're not going to get into too much detail on the facts of the case because we want to keep our our (laughs) iTunes rating. (laughs) Yes. Um, uh, in any event, uh, the film was called Starballs, which I will note in passing bears a passing resemblance to another parody film, Spaceballs. Yes, which is a clear parody. Which is a clear parody. Uh, but Lucasfilm argued that Starballs uh, was uh, committing trademark dilution, specifically tarnishment, uh, and argued that they wanted an injunction. Uh, but the court said no on grounds that Starballs was a parody and that parody is a protected form of non-commercial use of a trademark even though it's the title of a movie that's being sold on the internet. Yeah, now this is what I think is interesting. We're talking about movie versus movie now. Yeah. That's what it is. Very different movies, obviously. Very yeah. different subject matters. But, but the, the same medium, we're both talking audio, audiovisual works. Yep. I mean, Star Balls and Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars is two words. Star Balls was all one. It was a Z instead of an S yeah. because early 2000s. Um, you know, we have an adult film versus a, a lighthearted sci-fi family s- film. I mean, yeah, it was G-rated family, yeah. at the time. Um, it seems like a pretty strong case for tarnishment, but uh, no. The and, and in a bit of weird irony, uh, the court quoted uh, Senator Orrin 
Warren Hatch arguing uh, on the on the uh, floor of the Senate uh, about the reason for the tarnishment rules, and he basically was explaining that it is not meant to stop things like parodies, and the court concluded that this was a parody of Star Wars. What, what I think is so interesting about this case in, in particular is this is not what you would think of as a parody. No. And you have to wonder, one of my thoughts in conjunction with this is, could it have been that Starballs is closer to Spaceballs? than it is to Star Wars. And just has some and, adult elements to yeah, it. Yeah, and Spaceballs is a parody. Definitely. Without any question, it was designed to be a parody. I don't know whether or not it was licensed. My guess was it probably was. Um, I you know, don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if anybody knows the answer to that question. I wouldn't be surprised either way. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised either it's way. It's Mel Brooks, right? Like he yeah, just, it's Mel Brooks. That's what he does. And, I mean, he does this. He parodies other movies. I mean, it, it's, it's very clearly a parody of Star Wars in the way it works. Spaceballs also has some adult elements to it. It does. Um, it's a little it's less overt, of course. Yeah, less overt, a little, you know, a little bit sort of things but like it's, that. Like, like I said, it's Mel Brooks. Yeah. So there's a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of toilet humor, a lot of innuendo. Yeah. Um, and that's you kind of you kind of have to wonder if Spaceballs hadn't existed, would this case have come down differently? Yeah. But was it because of the fact that you have sort of this intermediary that's okay? We are allowed to take one further step. That's it's a line okay. drawing, right? If there's no space, if, if Spaceballs is a parody. What makes this one not just because it's an adult film, yeah. right? Uh, so maybe that's what it was. Uh, you know, Lucasfilm also argued copyright infringement, and this was a motion for preliminary injunction. So there yeah. may have been more uh, machinations after this. But uh, the court said no injunction because there's no likelihood of, of Lucasfilm succeeding on copyright infringement because fair use would most likely succeed. So now you have to – I mean I haven't seen the movie, but I, you have to wonder how much of Star Wars' plot or characters or, or IP from a copyright perspective could have been used to where fair use would apply. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting and part of it's because we we haven't seen the movie, you know, obviously have no desire to see the movie. It, it's hard to know exactly like what was copied from the plot, you know, what was potentially copyrighted infringement between character strokes, names, like some uh, sort yeah. of adventure in space, and you, you know, yeah. it's, I suspect it's the, we probably had a female lead we laid with the bagels on the side of her head, you know. Yeah, and <laughs> the char- I'm sure the characters all had like like weird names that are like sound like yeah. you know the the main characters, uh, um, yeah, the, all, all the usual stuff you see. Uh, so anyway, and then no trademark infringement, of course, because no likelihood. Of confusion for obvious reasons. Nobody's going to confuse, what was it, Starballs with yeah. uh, with Star Wars. So uh, they didn't get anywhere with that. Uh, the second related case, uh, after this, somebody made a film called Star Wars Episode 30, which in Roman numerals is XXX. X, X, X. Uh, Star Wars Episode 30, colon, a porn parody. So very clear exactly what they're doing. <laughs> it's called a porn parody. It's not an accident that they put parody in the title of the film. This one, uh, did, they did not get sued by Lucasfilm. The people who made Star Wars Episode 30 registered the copyright to their movie with the copyright office, and then they went out and sued people for infringing their copyright in Star Wars Episode 30 by filing John Doe lawsuits against people downloading it over BitTorrent. Yep. Crazy, right? Yeah, sort of. I mean, though, again, I think the thing you jump from this is, is they'd seen the prior case. Right. So they knew. If that's a parody, then we can, we don't have to even be as coy as Starballs. We'll just call it Star Wars. It's a yeah. parody. It's a parody. And that's, again, where I think it's very interesting it about the this title. <laughs> is parody is oftentimes not treated as like, you know, when we think of parody under copyright law, that isn't always what parody means. Parody oftentimes means more parody for commentary, mm-hmm. that you're parodying something to comment on it to provide sort of political commentary, something like that. These are clearly not that. No, like, compare this to our character copyright episode, uh, the last one, I think, where we went through a bunch of cases. Uh, the Wind Done Gone is a good example yeah. of that. It's a it's a parody of Gone with the Wind, but it's written f- for the purpose of criticizing the, the um, blasé treatment of slavery in Gone with the Wind. Um, so that was found to be commentary about the original work. But, you know, is, is Spaceballs, for example, is it really a criticism of Star Wars or is it yeah. more of a loving homage? You know? Yeah, and those kind of things. But Ezra, I think you also – you bump into this from, from a legal point of view, a law school point of view. Anybody out there who's been to law school, it's, it is a slippery slope. It is. It is. It's, which is one of those phrases that you will hear all the time in law school, which is the concept of once a case finds one way, you know, it's pushing the boundary. The boundary gets pushed beyond that. And then the case finds that way again. It pushes the boundary beyond that. We have to wonder how much of this was because of the fact that sort of Spaceballs existed as was 
a parody that was out there. And then looking at this and saying, well, this is also a parody, just the fact that it's adult content isn't. Whereas if you were to look at it and say, no, we're going to do pure adult content with just Star Wars being the only thing out there with nobody having made a parody of it, could this have come down differently? And I think we're seeing a bit of that. You know, you're starting Mm -hmm. to see more of it. You also have to wonder is how much of this is now currently in popular culture already? You know, how much do we now see adult content based around popular things in culture because of this case, that there's sort of this recognition that it can be parody of the underlying work. They change the names, they make sure they don't use characters, they make sure they stay away from it, but it looks similar, it carries over elements, it's clearly, again, sort of designed to be an homage, it's a fantasy, so to speak. Um, I mean, I have the feeling that there probably already exists stuff like this in conjunction with Game of Thrones. I'm sure there does. Um, given Game the of Thrones itself. Of the Game of Thrones <laughs> itself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure that it's one of these things where there's probably some of this going on now, which potentially came out of this. Um, and the idea that essentially adult entertainment can be parody of the original. And I, again, I think a lot of people hearing that is kind of like, wait, how? How? That just seems like uh, crap. Like, I'm going to take something that exists, hire some adult actors, film it, and then voila, we uh, print money. Yeah. You know? you know, and if that's the case, like, why isn't a fan film a parody? Yeah. You know, that has nothing to do with the plot. You know, wait a minute, like, where does this where does this line seem, uh, really like happen? Pornographic works in our in our legal system get special treatment, but not in the way you'd think. Like, yeah. there's all these First Amendment exceptions for it, but you know, fan films, well, you can't do that, of course. Yeah, it's and again, there's even the weirdness of you know association with you know adult entertainment and, and First Amendment rights. How much do we have this sort of play that sort of the adult films have gotten a bit more, um, la- you know, a bit more sort of, you know, lax coverage, so to speak, yeah. because of First Amendment concerns, because they're potentially subject to being shut down for reasons that wouldn't necessarily violate speech. Well, it's odd. At the same time, adult content, I think, has gotten more taboo over time. I can remember going to movie theaters when I was a kid, and there would be rated X movies in yeah. the same theaters as everything else, and if you read the newspaper, Roger Ebert would go to them and review them like any other yeah. film. This one's good. This one's not. And I'm then not at some sure point, they are rated X films anymore. No. I mean, they have some other label for it now, NC-18 or whatever the heck it's called. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously you'd never do that. No theater would have a rated X film in the theater. Yeah. yeah, you know, you have special theaters for stuff like that that are just have those kinds of movies. Uh, so, so the stigma around adult uh, content like that, I think, has gotten uh, more extreme or more sensitive to it. I remember, you ever seen Top Secret? I think it's yeah. rated PG. Like, well, Star Wars was rated G when it came yeah. out. Like, Top think about Secret that. has nudity in it. Yeah. And when I was a kid, we just got to watch it, and this wasn't a big deal. Nobody cared. You know? Yeah. There are some interesting things that sort of have we become more taboo? Have we reached stuff from more taboo? Have we moved away from taboo? Have we changed what we have as taboo? You know, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things when you go back in movies, you watch a lot of movies, there's a lot of movies that have not aged well. No. <laughs> um, you know, as to, you know, what was sort of acceptable 50 years ago is not acceptable at all anymore. And CEG, the majority of Disney's catalog. Yeah, early catalog. A lot of, of Disney's century. early catalog, unfortunately, you know, which are kids' films. Like, you have to keep yeah. that in mind. Like, these are films geared to small children. And, you know, at the time it was totally acceptable and now it would just, I mean, it would be considered just cringeworthy. You look back and you just cringe. Um, But at the same time, you kind of look at it and you say, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? That's a political debate we're not going to get into on this show. No, it's just, it is. It it, it is. It It just is. But then you also wonder from a legal point of view, when we're talking about law and the idea that, you know, the law is very slow to move and very static. Do we have sort of because of these kind of films, we had a different era when this happened that said, hey, yes, this kind of is parody. This kind of is, you know, it is, this is okay. Whereas now, if these kind of cases were to come down from a first impression today, no, we'd never, we'd never allow this. Yeah. Um, and and you got to kind of wonder how much of that could potentially be what it is. Um, I happen to just be listening to, you know, we, you don't know which podcast I refer to, but it was one of the comments where they just said they did a survey and 40% of New York's residences don't meet New York zoning requirements for residences, mm-hmm. but they're all grandfathered in. Yeah. And it's, it's that kind of thing is it's how much do we have law that's grandfathered in yeah. um, that is created because of a different time period. It, it's not something that we look at and say that the world has fundamentally changed and we find sort of problematic now, but the world has changed and the, the sort of legal precedent still exists even though it was based on a different set of mores, a different set yeah. of thoughts and feelings. But 
it still exists and it's still moving forward and we're still treating it as law. And we, and we have to try to find a way to fit current facts into this framework set out under a, a, a different set of moral circumstances, social circumstances. What was acceptable is different, but, you know, you have the rules now and so they, they apply to future cases. And yep. sometimes there's a saying, bad facts make bad law. And, you know, this is something that lawyers and, and judges worry about that so few cases actually go to a, uh, you know, a, an appellate decision to where the law can be established. Uh, the ones that that do are sort of by definition edge cases yeah. that, that are that are have strange facts, and you wonder how much of that you know is causing the legal system to move in, in odd directions. Um, let's hit uh, case number three. This is a fun one. Ideal Toys versus Kenner. Kenner, of course, was the original manufacturer and distributor of the Star Wars toys. This case was filed in 1977, which that date should stick out. That is when Star Wars released in yeah. uh, May 4, 1977. Uh, this decision came down in December of 1977, so within um, – uh, you know the, the same year, and for those of you who don't don't recall, when uh, the Star Wars toys uh, were were crazy popular, everybody wanted them. But as of Christmas 1977, they weren't being made yet. Yeah, you could buy an empty box that had a certificate that would ship you the toys once they were ready, but they hadn't actually been produced. For those of you who may be just at all interested, I'm, I'm, I've actually was a toy collector for a little bit for a while. I collect Transformers toys. Um, I still collect some versions of them. For those of you who have any interest in sort of toys and toy marketing and stuff like that, I would invite you watch documentaries on Star Wars toys mm -hmm. because they are fascinating in sort of how it worked and things like that. I mean, you have to realize that the most popular Christmas gift from Star Wars, the first Christmas following Star Wars, mm -hmm. was an empty, empty box. <laughs> but it was the right to get toys because nobody had them at that point in time. They literally couldn't get them made fast enough. Um, and so those are a, a, an important thing to sort of keep in mind, you know, with this is it's the concept of toys like we have now where the toys release in front of the movie, you know, and oftentimes mm -hmm. you're advertised in front of the movie and advertise the movie, you know, and stuff like that, did not happen. Well, because manufacturing took so much longer. Look yeah. at today. You could, I mean, as of last night, I saw pictures of people in downtown St. Louis already wearing their Stanley yeah. Cup champion shirts and hats now, and everything else. Now, note, there are also Stanley Cup champion Bruin shirts that exist. Yeah. They're being destroyed right yeah. now. No, they're being shipped to Nicaragua and <laughs> people there will be wearing them. Um, yeah. Uh, but that's just, it's, it's different now, right? Yeah. Because the, the the mania and the impulse to buy is right now. I just uh, my neighbor just posted something on Facebook. He went over to Dick's to try and get some blue stuff. He said the line is out the door and it was sold out before he even got halfway in. Yeah. like it's it's. Well, again, one of them opened opened immediately after the game, and apparently they were sold out within minutes. Yeah. So it's gonna th that parade Saturday, by the way. There, there's gonna be a hundred thousand people there. Yeah, it's gonna be I, crazy. It's, I'm, it's gonna be nuts. Anyway, uh, so Ideal Toys made a line of toys, no movie, just toys. That that bore what seemed like more than uh, coincidental similarities to key characters from Star Wars. There were two droids. One was humanoid. Two one robots. was Let's two be robots. Let's accurate. They were robots. Robots. One was uh, humanoid in, in shape, and one was sort of a squat, round uh, robot. And they were the sworn enemies of the evil Dark Knight um, with his mystical powers. Batman. And it was called no, wait, it wasn't Batman. Star Team. <laughs> um, so Kenner saw an injunction that Star Team was uh, obviously just uh, piggybacking off of the success of Star Wars. They lost. Uh, it's a lengthy opinion that involves a number of claims and complicated legal issues. But there is one interesting part that I thought we'd talk about here because one of the claims was uh, copyright infringement, that yep. these new toys by Star Team were infringing the copyright in the Star Wars, not the toys because the toys didn't exist yet, but the characters in the yes. film. And this is an important distinction because the character um, is 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 different from a toy. The toy is a sculpture. It's a three-dimensional yeah. object. So there's a copyright in that sculpture. But if you remember the toys, they also – the toys did not look exactly like the characters because you mostly want to avoid making the toys look too much like the actors. Yeah, and a lot of what it is is they look a lot like their costumes. And yes. that's, I think, a thing to keep in mind. There, there's obviously costumes that are hard to duplicate. I mean anybody who saw sort of Chewbacca – um, you know, in conjunction with it, it's hard to make a, you know, furry teddy bear-like creature out of plastic, um, particularly when it can't really have any texture that could break off easily. Yep. Um, you know, so they obviously bore a lot of appearance, you know, relationships, sort of things like that. But, you know, you do have some stuff with it. I think one of the keys about it, though, is we got to remember, this case came down before there were any Star Wars toys. And that's what the court said. They said, we're being asked to compare whether these toys um, – 
uh, are infringing a character, but you can't put the toy side by side with the character. The character's personality and who the character is is defined narratively in a story, and it's apples and oranges. You just can't compare them, whereas these toys don't have any character. There's a, yep. a, a one-sentence explanation that they're the sworn enemy of the Dark Knight. Well, what does that mean? It doesn't tell you anything. Yeah, it's just it's a some generic, sense it's an archetype. It's they're a robot archetype. and an evil guy. Yeah, so it's meaningless. So, so Kenner lost their injunction uh, in, in that case, um, and, and the court said, Neither the court nor anyone else is capable of placing the toys and the characters side by side to compare them. And it's true. You can't. You can't, you can't do that. Uh, so uh, Kenra lost that one. So, so far, uh, Lucas is not having a lot <laughs> yeah. of luck enforcing Which his is rights. It's interesting when you think about it because we, we, we said sort of Star Wars is one of the most well-known properties out there. There's a reason why we're using Star Wars as this yeah. example. Yet they keep losing. Maybe this is why he stopped enforcing it later <laughs> on because he couldn't win. Well, his fortunes are going to shift. So we're going to move to 1984 in a case called Sealer versus Lucasfilm. We could have done a whole episode just on this case. Um, this is a fascinating case. So this case involves The Empire Strikes Back, and the plaintiff's name was Lee, I think it's Seiler or Seiler, S-E-I-L-E-R. Uh, it was a Los Angeles-based, uh, I think, sci-fi writer um, um, and, and uh, designer, a graphic designer. Yeah, graphic designer. Probably. And after Empire Strikes Back came out in 1980, uh, Seiler in 1981 filed a copyright registration on something he called a Garthian Strider. Um, actually, several of them. And uh, he then uh, sued Lucasfilm, claiming that the AT-AT walkers and uh, maybe the ATST walkers, even more so, from Empire Strikes Back, uh, infringed his copyright in the Garthian Strider. That it was they stole they stole his ideas. Um, if you just Google Garthian Strider, you can find a picture of it. it. It does bear more than a passing resemblance, I think, to the ATST more than the AT-AT. Um, but the case fell apart for Mr. Sealer for. Interesting reasons. Well, and, and the, the, yeah. I want to talk about this quickly as to what it is. This is one of these cases where what we're going to talk about here in the law has very little to do with similarities between these two objects. Yeah. This is very legal procedural issues. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, Sealer argued copyright infringement and a few other causes, including some California causes. Uh, and the court basically found him not credible, in part because his registration was filed in 1981, which is after Empire Strikes Back came out, although he claimed that he had uh, come up with this stuff in the 70s and published something in 76 or 79 or something like that. The problem was he couldn't prove it. Yeah. Uh, and his, his story for why he couldn't prove it kind of changed over time. He would, he would you know, he'd be in deposition and he'd answer a question and then he'd get another question, he'd contradict himself. And the, the long and short of it is he claimed that he had original drawings in the 70s of these things, but he couldn't reproduce them now uh, because they were destroyed in a flood. Uh, now, he claimed that he was building a geodesic dome house in Los Angeles somewhere and that he was storing the drawings in boxes underneath the floor uh, surrounded by, like, chicken wire and dirt, and then there was a flood that destroyed all of it. And so he had to take it down to the, uh, to the dump and get rid of it. Um, this doesn't make much sense. I don't think Los Angeles is famous for its flooding problems. Yep. Uh, so <laughs> the court really bought that. Um, and in any event, he contradicted himself. And I'm going to read uh, – I know we don't like to read too much from cases, but this is one of the most direct and excoriating um, criticisms of a plaintiff's credibility I've ever read in a case. So here's what the court said. At the outset, the court repeats for emphasis that the great bulk of plaintiff's testimony was unbelievable, often bordering on the incredible. Plaintiff testified extensively concerning the quote-unquote facts surrounding the destruction and loss of plaintiff's originals, only to materially alter his version of those facts upon cross-examination and often again upon redirect and recross-examination. Not surprisingly, the majority of these bizarre quote-unquote facts were not corroborated by any neutral or independent third party. In particular, plaintiff's version of the circumstances surrounding the destruction of his originals by flood was inherently unbelievable and disturbingly contradictory. In some, it appears to the court that the absence of any originals of the works in suit or even a single copy produced by any independent third party that was possessed by that third party prior to the release of Empire Strikes Back is far from accidental or providential, end quote. 
Kirk, that's, those are some strong words. Yeah, those are very strong <laughs> words by a court. And again, I think what we really want to focus on here is you notice those court, those words had nothing to do with the similarity between the drawings and the ATST walker. Yeah, the they completely walker. ignored that part. They're just saying, we just don't believe you. Yes. The, this is this is where we talk about, you know, court the cases being sort of intriguing to lawyers, what it is. This was a case having to do with evidence rules. And the idea was essentially what came into it is he could not produce sufficient evidence to show he was entitled to the copyright in the first place. Yeah. Uh, so in litigation, there's something called the best evidence rule, which means you have to use the original. And original in this context means something different from what you think. It doesn't mean the original physical sheet of paper. Yep. It means a, a copy or representation of the original. So, for example, if I can't find the letter that I sent, I can't sit down and just retype it and say, well, this is what it was. That's not the original. That's yep. me reconstructing it after the fact. And my recollection of what it said may be faulty. So it can't be taken as, as evidence of what the original really yeah. was. Or if it is evidence, it's very weak evidence. It, it, it's usually you can take it as some evidence. A lot of times it's referred to as hearsay. You've probably yeah. heard that as a, as a term you may encounter in law. But basically the idea is you have – it's very hard for us to determine. If you're saying mentally this is what I remember it said, but I have no indication that said that's what it actually said, you are inherently unbelievable because you yeah. want it to be something to support your case. You have no grounds to say it was that thing other than I want it to be that thing. Yeah, and since there's no way to interrogate or cross that or, yeah. or, or disparage or impeach it or otherwise contradict it, it we've just basically decided it's so prejudicial and so inherently unreliable, we're not going to let it in at all. Yeah. And, and in this but instance— not letting it in at all means that, like, he can't—if if we can't say that this is appropriate evidence of the copyright, he can't prove he has a copyright because he literally can't bring any evidence that says he does. And that's exactly what happened. They said, um, you know, the film came out in 1980. His earliest copies that he has of the work are from 1981. Well, what's to say he didn't just copy the ATST, make some modifications, claim he came up with it earlier, then file a copyright yeah. suit? We have no way to prove that that's not the case, and Lucas has no way to defend itself. Yeah. So it's basically, if he's right and all this did happen, it's just unfortunate bad luck for him that he didn't keep better records. But, you know, we're not going to let—the court basically said if we let this go forward, the opportunity for fraud would be, quote, limitless, end quote. So— uh, they didn't let this claim go forward. You can tell by his back. You know, if, if if this was legit, surely there would be a copy somewhere, right? Somebody would have seen it. He could find at least one witness who's like, yeah, I remember being at his place. And yeah, I remember seeing those. And yeah, that's what it looked like. That might be different. Yeah. But it's just this one guy and this reconstruction. And they said no. And again, I think the rookie thing about this is there is no statement here as to whether or not his story is true. There is a statement of the fact that we can't accept his story as yeah. true because he has no evidence that his story is true. And if we did, it creates an ability to create essentially unlimited fraud yeah. that we accept is true. Yeah. This and, and, and again, I, I kind of like this being our last real line, like solid case we're going to talk about today because this one is very, very legal. This has very little to do in conjunction with the property, very little to do with intellectual property. This is entirely evidence. And it's evidence of what is and is not allowed in a courtroom. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as we said, it's, you know, they may very well have been the case that he truly did develop these things. The, the, what he drew for those things was an exact recreation of it is we have no way of knowing that. We have no way also of knowing whether or not he could have made it up completely out of whole cloth after he saw the ATSD. And because we have no way of knowing in any way, which of those two things yep. is true? He's the only one who knows it, and we have no way of verifying There's the no veracity of that. There's no way to discredit that or confirm that. Yeah. And I think that's what the court's getting at here. Lucas's lawyers, I think, did a good job here of discrediting him because the court obviously doesn't believe his story. Yes. Which means they interrogated him in deposition and got him to contradict himself and tie himself in knots to the point where, you know, his story became more and more outlandish and less believable. And the fact that he couldn't reproduce a copy, couldn't find another witness who'd ever seen a copy, had no corroborating evidence. Evidence, uh, all that put together was was enough to impeach him and and confirm that excluding this evidence was yeah. the right way to go because he's probably not recognizing that excluding yeah. this evidence meant there was no case. Yeah, there, there was, was no, no case, and there probably shouldn't be because uh, they just didn't find the plaintiff uh, believable. So, yeah. uh, so that's how that one turned out. So we have a win finally for Star Wars. <laughs> yep. Uh, we have one more win we'll talk about really quickly, which is the Droid, uh, the Verizon Droid phone. There's not much to say about this one. I couldn't find much on it. I remember when this came out, wondering how they're getting away with that. Uh, but basically, um, you know, Verizon launched its Droid line of phones, and supposedly shortly before that, Lucasfilm acquired a trademark 
trademark registration on Droid as applied to wireless communication devices, which is interesting because they make films, not wireless communication devices. Although they probably were some Droid toys that might have communicated or thing, spoken. Right? I mean, there, there were walkie-talkie lakes were popular for toys back then. There's yeah. possible something out there. Well, couldn't you argue that C-3PO and R2-D2 are wireless communication devices? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but they don't actually work. Yeah, they're not real. That's just not Without Anthony Daniels, C-3PO does not do much. Yeah, um... Well, a person is a wireless communication device, right? <laughs> uh, so apparently, uh, I'm, I'm not. I try to look. I try to find the registration because I wanted to see what Lucas submitted as its specimen of use to prove that they actually had used it. I couldn't find the registration, so I don't know if this is an instance where the reporting is not accurate. Uh, I found one website that had a link to where they said the registration was. I clicked it; nothing came up, so I couldn't find the registration. I searched for any registrations of Droid, couldn't find it. So if, if it's there, um, it's it, it was hidden from me this morning when I was looking. So I'm not sure how Lucasfilm got the mark, but uh, from what I can tell, they they saber-rattled and Verizon basically just took a license to be able to use it, and that was the end of that. So um, that, that case, I think, is, is more interesting by the fact that Lucas, if, again, if, if the internet is to be believed, somehow got a registration on this in the first place, which just seems a little odd. Yeah, and, and especially since we can't seem to find it, you know, you yeah. also got to wonder, was this a common law assertion? Like, there was common law trademark assertion underneath this. Um, you know, was it even something that sort of the two companies worked together to make sure there wasn't an issue, yeah, quite frankly. You know, be. I mean, that's also a possibility is they wanted to use the name. They realized there was a possibility. They went to him. They, yep. they made sure that they, there was a license in place for something so yep. that there was no issue for either party and that and everybody walked away. Now, I should say these are five cases. I searched on Westlaw this morning for any case in the United States that contains the words Star Space Wars next to each other. There are 254. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mean there's 254 cases that involve Lucasfilm or Star Wars. A lot of those were citations to the very first case we talked about to finding that that use of Star Wars was parody. That case has been cited frequently in other trademark contexts. Context yep. as uh, as, a, as an important case because it it, um, it it was very influential as we have discussed today. So yep. um, you know there's 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 more to it than that. And I also saw one that had a good example of a descriptive use versus uh, versus a a, 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 a a trademark use of Star Wars. Um, and I, I didn't put the case in here because the facts of that case weren't super relevant. Uh, it involved a first contact, actually. There's a, a sci-fi writer from the 40s, I think, who had a novel called First Contact. And then when Star Trek First Contact came out, the heirs of uh, that writer uh, sued Paramount for stealing the First Contact name. And the court basically said, you know, it's, it doesn't function as a trademark. It'd be like saying every sci-fi movie is a Star Wars movie. No, it's not. When I say Star Wars movie, I mean a Star Wars movie set in the Star Wars universe made by not Lucasfilm a, not a Disney. war taking place amongst yeah, the stars. Yeah. And, I, and Star Trek is not a Star Wars movie, and don't you dare say that it is. Like, <laughs> even the courts know that much. So, anyway, so there's, a, there's a lot of stuff we could talk about here, uh, but we tried to grab some that we thought were interesting and illustrated some some neat legal points and had some uh, some interesting facts. Yeah, <laughs> in some and of definitely these cases. some interesting facts in some of these cases. All right. Uh, well, we don't actually know what our next topic is going to be. Uh, Kirk and I have both been running around like chickens with our heads cut off for the last few weeks and haven't had a chance. Well, you were on vacation, too. Yep. Uh, and then uh, with the Stanley Cup, uh, I've been busy, so um, uh, we don't have a, a topic plan for next time. But we will, and we'll be we'll be back in three weeks, and we'll have something to present to you that will be amazing. So you will not want to miss it. Um, I think that's all, Kirk. Any closing thoughts? I, I think that's pretty much it. Again, uh, you know, we touched with the idea. I'd love, we'd love to get feedback on this kind of an episode, see what people think about it. This is yeah, probably the first time we've really talked about cases as sort of the real function of it. In some sense, this is a law school class. There are lots of things like this we can do. If people like this as a format, let us know because we can add more episodes like this. Yeah, you know, I love these. They're easy to prepare stuff. for. <laughs> yeah, they're easy for us to prepare for. They're also kind of fun because we get to do research on, you know, crazy yeah. cases involving, you know, some property. Um, yeah, so so hit us up on, on the internet and let us know what you think. All right, well, there's the music, and it's time to go. Uh, check out our website at lggpodcast.com. It has links to our various platforms where you can download prior episodes, get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook, and by email. Uh, please, please subscribe to our podcast on all the platforms. Give us a review. That helps us find new listeners and optimize the search engines and things like that. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at KirkDMN. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Go Blues. Lorem, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 